Welcome to It's Complicated, a podcast about healthcare ethics and practice, presented by the Nova Scotia Health Ethics Network, or NSHEN. I'm Marika Warren, network ethicist for NSHEN, and I'll be your host for this conversation. The podcast is now in its third season, and we hope that you're finding these conversations useful. As always, we welcome any feedback and suggestions related to topics and participants, so please feel free to reach out with that. I'm joined today by Jocelyn Tranquilla who is a social worker and bereavement coordinator with the Integrated Palliative Care Service in Nova Scotia Health Central Zone. Grief is a common experience in healthcare, both for those who are receiving care and for those who are providing care. And so I'm hoping our discussion today will provide an opportunity to explore grief and grief support through an ethics lens. But maybe to start us off, Jocelyn, you could give us maybe a bit more about your role in grief support in Nova Scotia Health. So, you know, what it is, who can access it, things like that. Sure. So I, as you mentioned, am the bereavement coordinator with the Integrated Palliative Care Service in Central Zone. So this uh, position, which I just started in January, so it's a fairly new position for me, is connected to the palliative care service. The job description is unique in the province. It's the only full-time bereavement coordinator with the health authority, and it has sort of a dual mandate. I am responsible for building and providing grief supports for the family and friends of those who die in the palliative care service. So that would include grief counseling, grief support, um, opportunities for memorialization. So that's one part of my work. And then the other part of my work is providing support at a from a from a public health perspective. So supporting the development of policy, supporting healthcare providers, building capacity within the health authority and the wider community. I take the position uh, that, as I mentioned, a public health approach. So one that sees grief as a natural part of, of life, one that is not a mental illness, something that is best addressed in the community. There isn't any one way to support grief. Um, And so much of what I do is supporting building capacity for the people who are themselves grieving as healthcare providers and providing supports and sometimes just not knowing what to do because our society isn't very grief literate. So sometimes people think that a special grief expert could come in and provide the special words. But really what my job is more is developing that grief literacy. Terrific. So in that work that you're doing, and again, in sort of developing that literacy in sort of a, a systems level or a systems approach to, uh, to grief, what are some of the things that contribute in that work to creating situations where you might encounter ethical questions or where there might be sort of ethical considerations that come into that work? Yeah, there are a few areas. So one that I can think of in terms of the direct service provision is that, as you are likely well aware, there are challenges within the healthcare system right now, and that includes staffing and um, public perception of healthcare has shifted in Nova Scotia. And so grief is 
often very difficult experience. That's to be expected. But the area that I find moral distress around is when I am the person with the Nova Scotia Health Authority name tag to provide the grief support. And the organization I work for also represents something in the griever that they feel their loved one maybe didn't get the care that they wanted or thought that they should, some perception that the healthcare system is responsible for an end of life that was more difficult than they would have wanted for their loved one. So I'm in this kind of dual role where I provide support to people, but I also represent something that a system that people find really challenging. And I think that there's a lot there with the the moral distress. Uh, I was at a national ethics conference recently where there was discussion around moral distress and also the ways in which some decisions made by the organization for sometimes good ethically justified reasons, particularly during pandemic, nonetheless led to moral distress on the part of folks working within the system and that how do we sort of, from the ethics perspective, reconcile the role, similarly, I think, both in you know, helping to support people with the moral distress they're experiencing, but also possibly participating in some of the you know, decisions that cause or help to generate some of that moral distress in the first place. So that's a hard tension to uh, to navigate. And so I think that it occurs for folks in different places in the healthcare system, but certainly I hadn't before this thought about the way that that would come up in the particular context of grief support. And so I'm curious about, for yourself and your work, how you navigate some of that uh, tension and some of the sort of strategies that you use to address that uh, concern when it arises. Well, one way is that I talk about it. I notice it in myself. Um, I came to this conversation with you because I had been in conversation with the spiritual care provider that I work with around this concern. And he supported and encouraged me to approach ethics, to have it be, to to be able to see it as an ethical issue where there is no right answer, but not talking about it when I'm feeling it and I hear it and I hear the stories does make it worse. There is certainly, I don't think it's a, a surprise to say that there's a certain level of burnout within healthcare providers. Um, and I, I think my lens is that what is sometimes coined the second epidemic, which is that of grief, is impacting healthcare providers. So being able to talk about it with my colleagues, normalizing it amongst the interdisciplinary team that I work with and other teams that I come in contact with, I do think that that does help alleviate some of the distress. I also found it very helpful in my conversation with ethics to understand that my own moral dilemma around this issue can be interpreted as a kind of way that my own moral compass is healthy, that I am feeling that distress because it is a distressing situation. Absolutely. I think there's there's a nice parallel with the experience of grief as well, that it's a you know, it's a healthy response to a situation that is sad, where there's been a loss of some sort, and there is a need to acknowledge that loss and to you know, figure out how to you know, continue to function 
sort of with that loss, taking it uh, on board. And again, sort of similarly, that experience of distress, when it is a distressing situation, that's a sign of you know, being appropriately oriented to the uh, to the situation. So I think there's, there's a lot of parallels uh, there between the two. There's another thing that you, you know, mentioned even just in your introduction, so noting that you know the, the work that you do is located within palliative care specifically, but you know, palliative care is certainly not the only location within the healthcare system where folks are experiencing grief, whether as you know, patients or you know, families and loved ones or as professionals. So in terms of sort of the, the ethics around access to the sort of support that uh, you're able to provide, how have you sort of, you know, in your role, recognizing that you're new to the role, sort of started to think about uh, how to address those sorts of ethical concerns? Oh, certainly. This is significant because palliative care arguably is one of the areas of care where people get provided with the most holistic support at end of life, where their their deaths are supported and family members or people in their life have access to support, where grief is seen as part of the palliative care trajectory of care. And so that's only a small number of people who die within the healthcare system. And we know that some of the most traumatic deaths, for instance, in ICU, in the emergency room, in areas uh, where there was other traumatic deaths, like through suicide, through homicide, those individuals, they don't have access to grief support through me. So that's a significant area of moral distress for me because some of the most, I don't like this word, but complicated or difficult grief experiences are not ones that I see directly. And so that's why for me, having this public health perspective is so imperative so that I can provide support and leadership to teams outside of palliative care to be able to access this um, building up their capacity around grief literacy, around comfort, to talk openly about grief, to acknowledge grief. Because in those situations, as I mentioned, like in the emergency room or other traumatic deaths, the healthcare provider who is there, the paramedic, the doctor, the community member, their words are much more impactful than mine because my words aren't there and I'm not in their their, their life. I'm not one of their healthcare providers. So certainly that is something that I acknowledge and I'm trying to find ways to work at a provincial level and support policy so that those, not just those who are in palliative care, get access to the grief support, that we build it up in the communities more broadly, that we don't see it as a as a mental illness. Grief is not a mental illness. And yet, when grief is not supported, it can become mental illness. So grief support in the community, through the healthcare system as well, is a preventative mental health approach for all of us. Because us as healthcare providers as well, when we see this grief in ourselves and those who we are serving as healthcare providers, it's extremely difficult. We don't, we're not robots. So it, it affects us. And I think, you know, the interesting comment about, you know, where do we locate those supports and, you know, that it tends to be sort of within healthcare that we've focused on. And so I'm curious about what you see as some of the um, sort of things that might need to happen in order to move more into the community, or if you think that that's, you know, perhaps a preferable location for there to be a wider range of 
supports and literacy around grief um, available to sort of a wide range uh, of folks who might be experiencing loss in their lives in some way? There are lots of fabulous projects and conversations that are going on. I think that perhaps never, I don't know, but have we talked so much about grief as during this period through the global pandemic. And so there is a lot of conversation going on within the community. So supporting that to be taking place, there's going to be a a grief literacy festival in September, which will include all sorts of events in the community. I see that as being very supportive for people because in fact, only a small number of people are wanting and find benefit in psychotherapeutic one-on-one counseling. That is something that's very helpful for people and certainly to have it be made available as an option is very helpful. But the majority of people live with their grief not in that way. They live it through their developing their faith, through connecting with nature, through talking with their people in their life, through Uh, connecting with other people who are experiencing grief through developing a new hobby, finding memorialization. There's just so many ways. So I see um, my role as also being up to date on the current research to be able to, when people contact me as a healthcare provider saying, what can I do? Or as a community member, I support the development of peer support groups. I will go and do what I can to support that to be developed. I think that that's, again, like you say, holistic approach you know, sort of across the board with a range of you know, supports and services, recognizing that everyone's experience of grief is going to be different in some ways. Um, but again, also thinking of that sort of you know, literacy underlying it and helping people sort of you know, recognize what they might need in terms of support and you know, sort of reaching out for it as opposed to you know, waiting for it to be offered as part of, you know, sort of a healthcare intervention that it frames it uh, very differently, I think. And again, you, know, you mentioned the the connection with spiritual care and sort of collaborating, you know, with other folks within the healthcare system. It sounds like you see a lot of benefit to sort of spreading that literacy you know, through the community, but also through communities of healthcare professionals as well. So it's not just you who is, you know, dealing with everyone's grief because that's your title, but that it's, again, a much more uh, broad-based approach that uh, that you're advocating for here. That's exactly it. So developing, you know, pamphlets through the health authority, opportunities to talk like this so that we can even psychoeducational opportunities to normalize what grief can look like, to say, you know what, it's very normal for a family, for instance, to all have very different responses to grief. One person's apathy, actually, that's a common response to grief. One person crying, that's common, but that's not the only common. People experience really deep rage and anger. And that's also common and normal and not necessarily pathological. So just normalizing that the, the symptoms, if you want to call that, of grief, normalizing them because they're very similar, a lot of the symptoms to um, mental illness. However, they're not mental illness. So, for instance, being completely disoriented in time, that's common in grief. Feeling a sense of disassociation, that's common in deep grief. It doesn't mean you're doing it wrong or you necessarily need to have a certain kind of specialized intervention, it means that we as a community 
can become more supportive of each other to just allow people to experience grief, to be comfortable to hear it without trying to fix it, because it's actually not a problem. It's extremely painful for people. It can be the most painful experience that they've ever had. It can change people's lives. It can totally rock the foundation of basic assumptions that people hold in terms of safety and security. So being able to even just be on a podcast like this where I can say those things so that people know in advance of experiencing that grief or in the face of it and somebody else that those things actually do happen. And there's great resources out there to support people. Um, But typically, while somebody is deeply grieving, they're not in a position to seek out the resources. They need the support of others. Right. And so again, that sort of broad-based community support and making space for grief in all of its forms and manifestations and expressions sort of thing sounds like something that's of benefit. And it strikes me too in your description of the range of reactions that folks have when they're grieving that some of those you know, are, again, connected in with the ethics pieces in that sort of people's deep values are affected by experiences of grief and there can be significant shifts in some of those values and sort of senses of what matter that are related uh, to grief. And so I think, again, opening up from my perspective in terms of the, you know, the ethics pieces, particularly in healthcare experiences, how is that going to affect you know, how they might approach another loved one's end of life experience or even just you know, experience of a significant, uh, yeah change in you know, function or you know, capacity or whatever it is that there's sort of an opportunity there to talk about what matters deeply uh, to us and again sort of how to bring that into into that space and acknowledge that as a piece of uh, grief as well strikes me as again ethical work that's being done there without necessarily being sort of identified and labeled as such but is nonetheless sort of meaningful and important in terms of thinking about how we collectively approach uh, approach grief and grief support. One value that I think of that comes up a lot within this work of grief is that we as a society really hold autonomy and um, independence as being extremely important. And, you know, individuals to a greater or lesser extent, but in the face of grief, oftentimes that is really challenged because we need each other. And those, my, my belief, my value is that we are interdependent. And that is a time when that is very clear in deep grief. And so when people hold a deep value around independence and are grieving, they feel like they have to do it alone. They feel like they have to work through it until some sort of magic um, closure takes place, which breaking news, there's no closure on grief that doesn't exist. So that's a value that um, often comes up and is challenged and people find really difficult. Yeah, I think it's, again, interesting to sort of think through with the ethics lens and some of the theories of things like relational ethics or Ubuntu, the idea that I am because we are, or some of the indigenous worldviews around sort of all my relations and sort of our existence in interdependent communities and a really deep recognition of that in experiences of grief, I think, you know, really speaks to something that it matters to us and to and to doing that sort of work well, you know, bringing that in. So I'm curious, you know, from your perspective, when we think about, you know, success or sort of desired outcomes of doing, uh, you know, either grief support sort of in an individual case or that sort of public health approach, what 
for you does sort of success look like or what would increased grief literacy look like for us? On an individual basis, one-on-one when I'm, I'm with people in their grief, I consider it a success if somebody feels less alone, if they feel supported in their suffering. At a more collective level, uh, there's lots of of exciting things I can imagine around what grief literacy could look like. It couldn't be children being able to openly talk about how a parent died without being shushed. It can be um, normalizing the great variety of responses that take place and having some framework for supporting each other rather than just trying to leave people alone until and kind of make them do it themselves. And we don't do that on purpose. It's not on purpose that we do that. But my my belief is that it connects to uh, our our deep phobia around death, our death-denying culture, and grief. We're also a grief-denying culture. And it's common for people who are really grieving, for literally people to walk and cross the street to avoid that person because it's so uncomfortable and we don't know what to do. I guess grief literacy on a collective level, what would be an indicator of success is if people felt comfortable being able to not fix other people. And to really sort of sit with that and be, be okay sort of with it. Again, thinking about what success looks like, we tend to think of, you know, are we all happy at the end of the day? But maybe that's not you know, necessarily the healthiest place for us to be in terms of grief, whereas there's, a, again, you know, living in a place where you're you know, supported and that grief can be expressed freely is perhaps, again, you know, a better indicator of success than a sense of, you know, we're all fine and we're all happy uh, sort of thing. You know, a, richer, a richer experience, perhaps, around grief. Certainly. And when somebody has a life-changing loss, it is a normal and healthy response for it to be life-changing. That's, that's something that we can expect um, for people to kind of ha- have their lives be changed and even that be reflected in a change of personality or values or ways of being. People don't go back to who they were before. That doesn't usually happen. So yeah, it sounds like there's opportunities perhaps for growth. You know, there's sort of that, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, post-traumatic stress, but also, you know, post-traumatic growth, which is, you know, at least in my layperson's understanding, you know, perhaps even more common than sort of a stress disorder after uh, you know, traumatic experiences without diminishing the fat, the very real you know, harms there. And that applies to grief nicely because resiliency is the norm in the face of grief for the human condition. A really difficult, prolonged grief experience that's acute for a long period of time, that's not as common. But we can do things to prevent that from happening. And part of that is by providing a wide variety of grief supports within healthcare, within the community, not having a one-size-fits-all sort of approach. Yeah. There's there's so many things I'd still love to follow up on, but we're running uh, out of uh, time for this discussion. Um, So I'm wondering maybe to bring it to a close and tying into that point, if there are some sort of key messages that you would share with other healthcare providers about grief support for you know, patients and families that they're working with sort of, again, in that moment where they might be concerned about saying the wrong thing or doing harm that way. Um, what are some of the you know, th- 
things you would want to give to them to help support them in their role? One thing I would say is acknowledge the loss and grief that's there. If you as a healthcare provider can see that somebody is experiencing a great grief in the face of a loss, acknowledging that, naming it. When people are experiencing grief, there's often a concern we don't want to bring it up for fear of triggering the person. But people who are grieving are already triggered. So being comfortable around naming the person who died, if it was a person, about naming the experience of loss, whether that be around um, losses associated with health status or with disability. Also, encouraging healthcare providers to consider for themselves, you know, to look at doing their own personal directive, to consider their own, how they, how we have been impacted in multiple ways, especially over the course of the pandemic. There's been a lot of losses. And so doing that kind of Uh, introspection as well will mean that you're more comfortable in the face of a situation that is really hard. And I guess uh, repeating myself here, but know that you don't have to fix it. That a very significant grief response doesn't mean that there's a, a pathology or it needs to be fixed. It means that the person is suffering a loss that's very significant for them. So if your job allows it in your work, being able to just be and not do can be very helpful. You know, there are some, it's, people are often afraid of saying the wrong thing, and so they say nothing. So just know as a healthcare provider, a compassionate word can mean a lot. Just showing that you care and you see the grief that's there can have a very significant impact on that person because the chances are good that they may not remember the details of what were said anyways, especially if it's really just recently happened to the death, for instance. But they may very well remember that there was a healthcare provider who was willing to just show compassion. I think that's the perfect note to end on. Thank you so much for sharing uh, your perspective and the experience and the wisdom that you've gained through the work uh, that you do. We appreciate it so much, and I hope this conversation has really sparked a lot of reflection in folks who are listening to it. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks also go to production support from Lisbeth Wilhoff-Nielsen, Kristen Lesko-Scary, and the team at Dalhousie MedIT. Thanks to Ben Caps for our theme music, and thank you for listening. Please feel free to contact Enshen through our website with any feedback you may have, including ideas for future episodes. Until next time. Mm-hmm.